great to, uh, great to see you all uh, again today. We are in part four of our series called Properly Formed, thinking about prayer. Uh, how does prayer at some level work, but what is prayer uh, about? In week one, and I want to keep saying this, prayer has a low bar. Prayer is not uh, this thing that we have to sort of jump over hurdles to achieve. Uh, and part of that, then, what we tried to do in the second week was talk about how prayer is something that we learn. It's not something that necessarily comes to us all naturally. Last week, we tried to sort of unpack a little bit, of then, of, uh, based on all of that, what actually is prayer. Next week, uh, jumping, jumping ahead, I'm excited to actually have a guest speaker with us to sort of round off this series. Uh, I've been thinking that a really nice place to end this series and helpful place for us in our journey as a church of working out what it means to be committed to the issue of, of justice and, and bringing the world in a direction of where God seems to want the world to be, I really want to end the series thinking about prayer and justice, prayer and God's heart for the world. Uh, and so I just want to let you know, next week, uh, I have a new friend that I've met during the pandemic uh, uh, via the internet. This happens from time to time. I was connected via a mutual friend to Joash Thomas. Uh, Joash uh, serves as the National Director of advocacy and mobilization for the International Justice Mission. So Joash is a new friend to me, but interestingly, those of you that have been at uh, Westside for a long time will know that the International Justice Mission, IJM, is, a, is an organization that Westside has been involved in in the past. And Joash is in Calgary next weekend, and I invited him to come and talk with us about prayer and justice. His background is in politics. Uh, he has a lot of interest in, in theology and now works, uh, works in this issue of uh, advocacy and, and you know, in, in terms of helping us understand. I think he's going to be a really, really interesting voice for us to come and learn from next week. He's originally from Mumbai, uh, came and lived in the States for a while, but we won't hold that against him because he then moved to Canada after that. And, and I think that's the right trajectory, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So, so please just mark your calendars next weekend. Joash is with, with us talking about prayer and justice, but that's next week. This week, I want to talk about Exodus chapter three, uh, because that was so obviously where that announcement was going. I, uh, I feel, like, I feel like I don't even need to intro that. In Exodus chapter 3, there is a story that perhaps you've seen a Disney movie about. Moses was tending to the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. This was uncommon in those days. And so <laughs> when the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. As we read this text, I know that the one question that's forming in everybody's mind is, we really need to talk about the ancient worldview and theology at this moment. I know you were thinking that, so that's what I want to talk about for a brief moment, because it's obvious, right? <laughs> 
This story actually drops us into a way of thinking about God that was very common in the world of Moses at this particular point of history. Gods are thought about geographically. And by that, I mean gods have a place. They belong in particular locations. The closer you get to the location of the god, the more holy the space is. The further away from the location of the god that you get, the less holy the place is. When you find yourself at the borderlines of your country, the god's space and power and influence diminishes quite rapidly. Hence why even if you read through the Bible, you'll notice from time to time, they'll talk about like God as the God of Israel. And then they'll talk about the gods of Egypt. Now, as a modern person, you might not think about gods in geographical context. You, we tend to talk about God in, in more sort of ethereal language. We talk about gods as spiritual things, and spiritual things are not located in particular spaces or geographic locations. But in the ancient world, gods belonged in particular places. So Moses sees God, this burning bush that seems a little bit strange. Trees invariably burn up, but he knows that something's going. He approaches God, and entirely in keeping with his understanding of how theology works, the closer he gets to where God is, the more holy the space is. God and Moses have a conversation. Conversation is about essentially the liberation of the people of Israel who are held in slavery in Egypt at this particular moment. And God says to Moses that what he wants him to do is go to Egypt, go to the king, the Pharaoh as he's known, and tell him that he should let all of God's people go from their slavery. Now, this is quite an interesting thing to say to an ancient person in an ancient context, because God, from this burning bush, tells Moses to go to another country and to go to that other country and tell the king there to do something. Now, kings invariably in the ancient world live near temples, so kings live in space that's quite close to holy space. So the God of one location tells Moses to go to another location and do something for him, to which Moses question, back to God, is quite obvious, I think, in this context. The text continues and says, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, sometimes we talk about this and go, well, well, Moses is forgetting a whole host of things when he asks this question, who am I? What does it matter who Moses is? Because, because God has asked him to do this. But in the ancient mindset, Think about how Moses hears this. The God from this geographic location tells him to go to another geographic location and do something. Essentially, if you live in Moses' world, he has to do this alone. Because if the God of this location wants him to go to another location, that God's not coming with him. So Moses asked the question, well, how, basically, I'm going to have to do this in my own strength. How can I do this? Who am I that I would do this? And God then says to Moses, I will be with you. And in the, in the context that this story is being told, this is an unprecedented theological shift. But what this God is saying to Moses is that he is not stuck in this particular location. This God is not frozen in this particular country. This might seem really obvious to us. But for Moses, the idea that he could go to a different country and his God would still be with him 
is unprecedented. It's world-changing at some level. This idea that the Bible drops into the way of thinking of this part of the world puts Israel and its God out of sync with their neighbors, out of time with the surrounding nations at some level. Cultures and worldviews are not able to cope necessarily with a God who you can move around with. But this is really important if you're going to read the Bible. If you think through the stories that you know from the Bible, this is something that just keeps happening. God is with us. God seems to go with us. The people of Israel end up exiled into another country eventually, and guess what? God goes with them. Later in the story, as you come into this section that we now know as the New Testament, somebody comes to Mary and says, you'll have a son, his name will be Emmanuel, which means God is with us. It's as if God doesn't want us to forget this theological shift that's happened. Jesus, when he's about to return to the Father, says to the disciples, I am with you always. So we begin with a tree that is burning but not burning up, and that appears to be holy ground. But where we end is that everywhere we go, this God goes with us. Everywhere we go has space for God. In Acts chapter 17, St. Paul is teaching uh, in Athens where nobody seems to be Jewish from what we can understand and nobody is definitely a Christian either. So this is not an idea that's necessarily familiar at this point. And he arrives in Athens and at this point they'd begun to think around the idea of the gods being mobile and what that largely meant was you took statues of them with you places. So it's not entirely you know, it's like in the early days of the cell phone. You know, they said it was mobile, but the battery was so big, you really couldn't go that far because it was going to die and you would get a hernia from carrying it. It was so heavy. But still, this, this idea is persisting in the New Testament that this God is with us. He's somehow everywhere we go. And so Paul, in his sermon, he says this, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Not a particular space, everything here. And he does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. I mean, just pause on the beauty of that text for a second. Whenever you come to God, know that he doesn't need anything from us, but he gives us everything. From one human, Paul continues, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him, perhaps reach out for him and find him. And then look at this, though he is not far from any one of us. And then Paul jumps into a little piece of Greek poetry and he cites this piece from a Greek poet who says, for in him we live and move and have our being. Paul is doubling down on this idea that everywhere we go, God is, because God is the God of everything. He's not geographically located. He's not fixed in a place in space. He's also not fixed in a place in time. This God is not fixed in our understanding of how we break up the world. Paul says this God is in everything and is every where he sustains the creation, but he is not part of the creation. Therefore, you can kind of confess that everything is holy, that God is everywhere. My question for us this morning 
is what difference does that make to how we pray? Does it change how we pray to realize that God is inviting us into an understanding of his involvement in our world that is total? That there's no area of the world wherein God is not interested. There's no area of your life wherein God is not involved. Is there a tendency sometimes to think other than that? Is there a tendency that when we come before God, and even thinking about that statement requires some unpacking, doesn't it? If God is everywhere, can I come before God or is he just always before me? And this idea, I think, is important because interestingly, despite this lesson that we have learned throughout history of a God who is not far from any of us, over the last few hundred years, a philosophical shift has happened, in, particularly in Western culture. Some people call it modernism. Other people talk about it as secularism. But the irony of this is this message of a God who's everywhere hasn't quite worked for us. So what we've tried to do is sort of push God back upstairs, to push God back into his space and say, well, God can have spiritual space. So it's kind of okay to understand that there might be a God. Some people are open to that idea. It's okay to think that there might be a God that we can even talk to, but all of that is categorized as spiritual. And we kind of have pushed the divine, the sacred, the holy out of our main spaces of our life and compartmentalized our lives into different categories. One category that, that is really major for us then is that we create this sort of secular and sacred divide. We, we almost go back to what Moses had at the burning bush, that here is something that's holy and then over here is not holy. So what would holy be? Holy would be spiritual spaces, we would say, perhaps churches. Uh, and sometimes we even, some churches, they call this space that we're in right now the sanctuary, literally a Latin idea, a term that means the holy place. And we call it the holy place, and that basically means don't let kids run around or spill your coffee <laughs> and other things as well. And we sort of push God into that space, and we behave differently. Every pastor I've ever spoken to has had somebody in the sanctuary say to them at some point, oh, I'm sorry for speaking like this in the sanctuary, which, which every pastor always wants to answer the question, would you speak like this outside of the sanctuary. <laughs> What's the difference between the doorway? And therefore, we go to church and that's holy space, but what about our job or our family or our vacation spaces? Well, they're not sacred. They are secular, perhaps, or ordinary. But then even in our own lives, we sort of divide up the inner and the outer portions of our lives. In the modern world, I think right now you can see that there's things which are external, which we value much more than things which are internal. We value bodies more than we value minds. If you don't believe me, look at the cost differential, even just in Alberta, between breaking your leg or needing to see a psychiatrist. There's one that we say, yes, we should definitely deal with that and make that accessible. And there's another that we say, well, you know, only if you can afford it. Or think about what we do in terms of how we reward people who produce versus artists. People that produce can earn a good living. Somebody wants to be an artist, we're like, well, I hope you like being poor. Because we know where you're going to find reward in your life. It's things which are physical, not things which speak to us in different ways. But that's even true in the church. We've divided up how we think about things between inner and outer, between secular and sacred. Think about 
how obsessed, and I think obsessed is the right word, but think about how obsessed the church is with questions of sexuality. But think about how largely unobsessed the church is. So let me say that better. We're very obsessed with what you do with your body sexually in church. That seems to be something we're quite well known for. Um, but we're less obsessed with what you do with your body financially. So how you earn your money, what you do with that money, well, that's kind of, you use your body to do that. That's between you and God, as long as you give us 10% of it. Um, <laughs> but that's kind of up to you. But this, no, all of this we want to know about and we want to talk about all the time. But Jesus doesn't divide the world up into those categories. Jesus doesn't split them down and go, this part of your body, God's very interested in this part of your body. Nah, not so much. But we've divided it up and we start to live with it in these particular ways. And if we think like this, and unless you've been very, very astute to modern society, we all kind of think like this, then prayer becomes just another thing to compartmentalize in your life. And you look at your life and go, well, this bit's busy, this bit's busy. Maybe what we're doing here in this series is talking about just another thing to fit into the spiritual part of my life exercise and food for my body, a bit of meditation for my mind, and now prayer for my spiritual life. And subtly, if what we do from a series like this is talk about how, well, this is about developing a good prayer life, we've actually accepted this compartmentalizing. The Bible introduces us to a God who's involved in every part of our life and wants us to flourish in every part of our life. Dallas Willard, one of the great teachers about discipleship, he said this, don't seek to develop a prayer life. Don't seek to develop a prayer life. Seek a praying life. A prayer life is a segmented time for prayer, and you'll end up feeling guilty that you don't spend more time in prayer. Can I get an amen? Does anybody ever experience that? One of the greatest fascinations for me as a pastor is anyone I ever ask, do you pray enough? I, nobody has ever said yes. Everybody, no, I don't pray enough. To which I love to ask the follow-up question, how much prayer is enough? Nobody knows the answer. So like, think about that for just living with guilt. I don't know. I know I'm not doing it right. I have no idea what right is. <laughs> <laughs> like that is a recipe for feeling guilty forever. And I'm pretty certain that wasn't one of Jesus's agendas. Come follow me. I'd always feel inadequate. But <laughs> you'll end up feeling guilty. You don't spend more time in prayer. Eventually, you'll probably feel defeated and give up. Now, you don't need to answer me on that one. But is Dallas Willard saying anything you relate to? <laughs> A praying life, however, is a life that is saturated with prayerfulness. You seek to do all that you do with the Lord. All that you do with the Lord. What does God say to Moses? I am with you. Now, there's nothing bad about setting apart a time for prayer. I would suggest that's even good. But if that's all we think prayer is, this compartmentalized moment in our life that we kind of get to if we've got time and are feeling kind of cognitively robust enough to get over the guilt and deal with it, 
That's not what God's called us to, however. The goal, I think, is for God to be holistically involved in our lives, that everything that we're involved in, somehow God is involved in, that we invite him to be involved in. And sometimes we just need to open our eyes and remember he is here with us. A prayer life is a burning tree that seems kind of interesting. God invites us into a praying life where he's with us all the time. Brian Zond, in, in, a, in a quote that has really shaped the title of this series, as you'll see, says this, the goal of spiritual practices like prayer or worship, scripture reading and the like, is to become properly formed as a being who bears the imago Dei, the image of God. Thus, the primary purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what we want God to do, but to be properly formed, to become the person God created us to be. Why do we pray? To be properly formed, to become whole, to become fully aware of God, to realize that God is interested in every nook and cranny of our lives. Jesus says, this is how you should pray, your will be done. And notice in Gethsemane, at his point of deep pain, Jesus prays, your will be done. Prayer is not something that we do in some compartmentalized corner, but rather is to realize that the God who spoke to Moses and said, I am with you, is the same God in relationship with us who is with us. And so this call for us is to stop thinking about our lives compartmentalized. What am I trying to do? And what is God trying to do? And a life that is a praying life is about bringing those two circles together. One of the ways I think that we can learn to do that is by thinking about the sacred as being everywhere. And what we've done throughout this series is introduced you to various different ways that you can throw in your toolbox and perhaps help you just become aware of the God and help you with the practices of prayer that help us become aware of God. What I want to do this morning is invite Phil uh, to come and teach us about something called Lectio Divina. It might even be known by some as sort of sacred reading, a way of coming before the text of Scripture as prayer, to see Scripture and the reading of Scripture as, as, as a tool that can make us aware of the God who is everywhere. Now, little word of warning. I've said a few times in the last few weeks that we want to move towards a place where we're a little more interactive and a little more dialogical. So you will notice that Tyson is sneaking out with microphones right now. So we're going to ask you to say some things as well. So if you need to take a drink, you know, clear your throat, get your, no, I'm just, <laughs> Phil, lead us and guide us. Thank Thanks, you. David. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Maybe we try that again. Hello. <laughs> okay, you are there. Um, so we're, we're going to practice, as David said today, um, Lexio Divina, and I want to do very little teaching on this. I actually just want to engage this practice with you. Uh, a few things on that. The first is that this is a very different way of reading scripture than most of us think about. Um, I've heard a number of young people recently, they're like, I'm doing the 30-day shred, and I, I'm thinking this is like a workout, but they're like reading the Bible in 30 days. I've never read the Bible in 30 days. But there's this way in which we're like, we have this big book and we have to read it all and get through it all. And all of that's very, very good. Um, we are not going to do that today. As 
you might have guessed. <laughs> um, we're actually going to do something very much the opposite of that, and we're going to take a, a small portion of Scripture, and we're going to pray through it um, several times and kind of meditatively. Uh, I say that. I, I was reminded this morning that recently I was with um, our students at the university, and one of the students said, I hear people say that all the time. We're praying the scripture. I have no idea what that means. And there's a number of ways in which we pray the scripture. Um, at 830 um, on weeknights, we're doing that together online. But this is another way in, in which we in which we practice this called Lexio Divina. Um, Eugene Peterson. So I, I do recommend this book in terms of kind of sacred reading and prayer. It's called Eat This Book. And Peterson says this. He says, Lexio Divina comprises four elements. Lexio, we read the text. Meditatio, if there's Latin scholars in here, this could be terrible, so forgive me. Uh, meditatio, we meditate the text. Okay, we chew the text. We, we spend time with it. Oratio, we pray the text, and contemplatio, we live the text. But he gives us a little warning here. He says, um, but naming the four elements must be accompanied by a practical awareness that their relationship is not sequential. So reading is a linear act, but a spiritual reading is not. Any of these elements may be at the fore at any one time. And so um, as we enter into this today and you're like, okay, I think maybe God is speaking this to me, but maybe that's not supposed to happen yet. You just settle into whatever, um, to whatever God is, is saying to you. Now, one of the things that we're going to take time with this morning for a few minutes at several points, is that we are going to practice silence together. Uh, it's not an empty silence. This is a silence in which we recognize actually God is very present with us. Uh, David talked a lot about that this morning. God is very present with us in this moment. Um, but one of the things when we are not used to uh, practicing moments of silence together. How many of you have kind of that sick pleasure of um, watching people on their first dates and laughing at them, like in a restaurant or whatever? Okay, just, okay, good, good. I'm glad my wife and I are not the only ones. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the things is you can totally tell people who are on their first dates because they are so scared. Uh, anytime there's like the silence, there's total awkwardness. And you're like, you can see them trying to fill the space. And like, oh my gosh, is this, you know, is this going bad? Um, of course, the longer that you are in a relationship with someone, um, you actually learn comfort in the silence. That um, the silence doesn't mean something's necessarily wrong. Uh, and you can sit very much secure in that silence. And so I think um, so many of us, like I'm, I'm scared often to leave three seconds of silence in between a song, right? So I'm just being honest. Um, but as we, as we do this this morning, um, don't be afraid of the silence. And it might take some time that, you know, the 30 seconds of silence might feel like 30 minutes. That's okay. That's natural. Um, but what I want you to do now is uh, let's position our bodies in a certain way, just of, of receiving from the Lord. Um, and that might be kind of sitting upright. And I want you to pay attention in this moment um, 
to your posture, to your breath. Maybe slow your breath. Maybe you've been you're worried about something, thinking about something. But the Lord is with us. And God wants to speak to us in this moment. As we learn how to meditate and pray these scriptures. And I believe that God is going to meet us in this way. And so I'm going to read this passage. I'm going to read it slowly and don't dissect it. Receive it. This is something to be received. So I'm going to speak it over you. And so just receive, be in a posture. And then I'm going to read it a second time and I'll give you some prompts along the way as, as we begin to do this. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I'll just sit with that for a moment. I'm going to read this again. And I want you, as you receive this word, to notice, are there any words, are there any phrases that stand out to you? Maybe they kind of shimmer. Or maybe there's some that make you uncomfortable or challenge you, whatever that is. I want you to pay attention to whatever that word or phrase is. Um, as we slowly read this. So again, in a posture to receive. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you. 
with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now just sit and let that word come up over or that phrase come up over and over again in your own heart, in your own mind. Just meditate on that for a moment as we are in a period of silence again. I wonder if somebody else would um, come up to one of the microphones and read this for us. My only request is that you read it slowly. We're often so so quick to jump in and read it quickly. Don't hesitate. This is um, this is really I'm elevated, but this is an equal ground here today. Um, so yeah, somebody please come and read this text for us. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. We'll just sit with this again, and again, just dwell on that word or phrase. Maybe, um, could you just, you don't have to leave your seat, just speak out, some of you, maybe uh, the word or phrase that God has placed in your heart today.
Not all at once, though. Hmm. Someone else. Who else? One or two more. Let's have one more. Yes. Okay, one more reader. We have somebody else come and read this. Again, nice and slowly. You're reading, you're reading it over the people today. Um, so, yeah, please, somebody come to a mic and uh, let's read this. Yeah, I see someone coming. Thank you. For this, re for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And we'll just take maybe 30 seconds. Let this settle in your hearts. And then I'm going to have uh, ask some of you to just come and respond in prayer. It can just be a second or two prayer. But let's just settle our hearts for a moment. Receive that word once again. Let it wash over you today. All right, who will, who will be first come and offer a prayer out of this reading, something that the Lord has been speaking in your heart? Let's just respond to the Lord in prayer now. Don't hesitate. Jesus, let me speak this word. Let me feel this word experience it in my heart, and let me live it. Amen. Someone else.
Lord, bless and keep us. Yeah, maybe two or three more. Just don't hesitate. Come on, Rhett. Yeah. Lord, uh, we even need your power to grasp your love, to understand it, to understand how wide and long and deep and high it is, how rich it is. Pray for that power, Father, to fill us to understand you better. Maybe two more. Stir our hearts, Lord. Fill us, cover us, draw us to you. Amen. And one, one final prayer, and then we will, uh, I'll read this over you one more time, uh, and David will come. I pray that out of your glorious riches, that you may strengthen me with your power of your spirit in my inner being. Amen. Amen. Do you notice that you don't have to have any musical skills or um, special gifts to do this? This is just the spirit prompting the body together to pray. Um, and so one more time, receive this. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inmost being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Phil, for just leading us so beautifully in just how simple it can be to take a piece of scripture, just pause and slow down and become aware. I just wonder, just as a, a thought to hold in your heart right now, we started with Moses being told by God that God was with him. 
And, and maybe you came in this morning and this was just a room and you came into it and it's just a room. And I just wonder how many of you, as we were leading, as Phil was leading us through this, and we were hearing your prayers and your thoughts and we were repeating this text. I wonder how many of you just sensed God is with us. He is here. That's the promise that your life is not compartmentalized into these little spaces, but this is the God who is with us and wants to talk to us. So perhaps simply we just say this as our benediction this morning. May you grasp how wide, how long, and high, and deep is the love of Christ. And may you be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Grace and peace to you, friends. Amen.